Father, as we sing and as we read your word and as we we consider the good news of the gospel, Lord, just in that last song, we declared together our true reality in Christ, that we have been redeemed and restored by faith in Christ. And we gather together this morning, Lord, to celebrate what is true by your grace, and we gather together to rest in the promises that you've made to us. Promises that you, are, uh, that you have no interest in breaking. God, we are grateful to be able to gather, to sing and to read, to hear your word, to be able to feast together by faith in the word of God. God, we are grateful to be able to encourage one another and to consider the good news of the gospel together. Father, we have gathered together this morning, just like every Sunday, to sing praises to you because you have saved us. You have given us good news. You have given us good works to walk in which you prepared beforehand. You have given us brothers and sisters to help us walk together towards the heavenly city as we look to the future that we have with our great King Jesus. You have given us an old command and you have given us new mercies. And Father, we gather together this morning not to exult in our own strength, not to consider how wonderful and awesome we might be, uh, not to consider uh, how great our intellect or our wisdom is to carry us from last Sunday to this Sunday, but God, we gather this morning to uh, profess and to confess that we are weak and we are in need of a Savior. We are in need of a Savior who is rich in mercy and grace. We are in need of a Savior who will bring us into his own presence, not based on what we are able to accomplish for him, but based on what he has accomplished for his own name's sake. And Father, we gather together to exult in the good news that Jesus has received us by faith in him. Father, we are often quick to forget who you are, what you are like, what you have accomplished, what your purposes are. Lord, would you forgive us for our self-centered memory? God, would you forgive us for forgetting to care for others as we have sought to care for our own concerns over them? Lord, would you help us to look to Jesus who washed the feet of his disciples? Would you help us to look to our great king who did not lord his great authority over those that would follow him, but served them. Father, we are reminded in Mark chapter 10 that even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That is good news of a good king. And we long for good news. We long to be strengthened by your spirit. And we exult in the promise that you've given to us that you will do just that. Your strength is made perfect in our weakness. There is sufficient grace for the troubles presently now. And so, Lord, in the midst of sin and discouragement and evil all around us, in the midst of difficulties and trials and tribulation, in the midst of our own fears and our anxieties, God, we come to you to see that you will not let us go. Regardless of how strong or weak our grip might be, there is no comparison to the grip of your hand. And so, God, we are grateful that we have a good God that we can come to 
who will not turn us away. And so, Father, as we open your word this morning, God, we ask that you would strengthen us by faith. As we consider the commands that you've given us, Father, we ask and pray that you would uh, 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 enable us to uh, turn away from the old man, to put on the new, to be able to obey the commands that you've given us. And we know, based on your word, your commandments are not burdensome. So, Lord, we come to you for rest, we come to you for worship, we come to you to praise you, and we come now that you would strengthen us and uh, strengthen our feeble legs and our, and our, and our weak hands to work in, in the, uh, uh, the, the good works that you've given for us, for our good and the good of our neighbors. Father, as we consider your gospel, Lord, help us to see that we have no good news other than Jesus and I pray that as I open uh, our, uh, the text this morning, Lord, I pray that the meditations of my heart and the words of my lips would be acceptable before you, O oh, our God and our Redeemer. And we pray all this in the name of your Son. Amen. Well, brothers and sisters, good morning and welcome. You may be seated. My name is Chris Gomes, and I serve as one of the pastors here at Hagerstown Church. And this is the part of the service where we say goodbye to our children for a little while, as our children go to Hubtown Kids, uh, Blue Station to your right and Gray Station to your left, the kids in uh, Hubtown Kids this morning, they're going to be reflecting upon the, 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 the characteristic of God that God is faithful. God is faithful. And, uh, by reflecting on the, uh, the passage in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23, they're going to be learning and relearning that God always keeps his promises. No matter what, God is faithful. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to the book of 1 John. Over the last couple of weeks, we've been uh, going through a brief uh, study through this letter of 1 John. Uh, written by the elder and the apostle, John himself, one of Jesus' inner three. We've considered how this letter was written by the elder apostle John to these beloved Christians in Asia Minor to encourage and strengthen them to hold to true doctrine, to encourage and strengthen them to not be deceived by false teachers, to encourage them and to strengthen them to walk in the light and to love one another. We've seen from the first chapter into uh, the beginning of the second chapter that the Apostle John had a concern to confirm the true Christian as well as to expose, expose the false teachers. And we saw last week and the, uh, the passage before last week's that John was doing so by presenting a kind of moral test. Right. So in 1 John chapter 1, verses 6 to 7, if you don't remember, you can flip to uh, 1 John chapter 1. We saw the apostle reaffirming to the Christians that if we say we have fellowship with him, him being the Lord, while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. He is, he's, he's refuting the claims of the false teachers that they could live however they wanted to and basically throw away any sort of moral restraint that God has given to us by uh, his spirit according to his word. If we say we have fellowship with God and we walk in darkness, we lie and we don't practice the truth. He went on in verse 7 to say, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. 
And then last week, we considered uh, Jesus Christ being our advocate with the Father. In uh, chapter 2, verses 4 through 5, the apostle went on to say, Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. So the Apostle John had a concern to confirm the true Christian and expose the one who is false using this moral test. This morning, we're going to uh, consider a different kind of test that the Apostle proposes. We'll consider the Apostle John's social test in chapter 2, verses 7 to 14. So if you are not there already in your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me there to 1 John chapter 2, verses 7 to 14. If you're new to reading the Bible, uh, the larger numbers are the chapter numbers, and the smaller numbers in the sentences are the verse numbers. Uh, you're also welcome to follow along in the, uh, by uh, looking at the screens behind me as I read. If you don't have a Bible, uh, consider the Black Pew Bibles in front of you a gift to, uh, to you from us, but don't just collect the Bible to have an impressive uh, bookshelf at home. Use that Bible, if you don't have one that you can read, uh, to feast on God's good word. You can turn to uh, page 1,210 in the Black Pew Bibles. 1 John chapter 2, verses 7 to 14. Beloved, I am writing to you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother and abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness, and does not know where he is going, because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Verse 12, I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God. And as we reflect on this passage, as we'll unpack this passage here uh, uh, in just a few moments, there's one big idea that I think the Apostle John is getting at that I believe we should walk away with. So if there's anything that you're going to reflect on today, consider this idea, that Christians are to love their fellow Christians as those who know the love of God. That's the main idea of the sermon. I believe that's the main idea of this passage. Christians are to love their fellow Christians as those who know the love of God. And I'm surprised no one said amen. amen. Let me say that one more time. Christians are to love their fellow Christians as those who know the love of God. Amen. There you go. You might be wondering what the Lord's will is for your life. 
What am I supposed to do this week? What does God want me to do with my life today? What does God want me to do with Monday? What does the Lord want me to do with my life forever? It's to love your fellow Christians. And at first glance, what I am presenting to you might sound rather elementary and rather basic. But we know from our own personal experience that loving other people is anything but easy. If it were easy, we would all be doing it really, really well. But as many of us can attest from our, from our own experience, loving one another is actually a very incredibly challenging call for all of us. We may be slow to admit, but we can attest to the fact that the scriptures testify to this. Our flesh is naturally inclined to ourselves. We are naturally inclined towards self-preservation and to consider our own good before we consider the good of others. But the Christian call is a call to self-denial and a call to love. And if you have loved a fellow Christian, then you know that the call to love is costly. Several years ago, a friend of mine, a non-Christian friend, showed me his tattoo on his arm that said, love is heavy. And I did not understand what that tattoo meant. What did he mean that love is heavy? I learned later that love is costly. It sounds awfully sentimental. You know, I think that Valentine's Day was just this past week, and you know, pink flowers and red flowers and candy and lovely sentiments all over the air. But if you've been married for any amount of time, if you've had children for any amount of time, you understand Love is heavy. Love is action. Love is less sentiment and more commitment. This passage, I believe, is giving us or reminding us two things that Christians have. Two things Christians have. So if you're taking notes, two things that Christians have. Number one, Christians have an old commandment. And Christians have assurance to know. An old commandment, an assurance to know. So look at, look, look at verses 7 to 11 with me. We'll consider this first possession that Christians have, this old commandment. So when you look at verse 7, it, the Apostle John, if, if you're somebody that appreciates linear thinking, John's writing style probably doesn't, you know, it, it's probably not the easiest for you to jive with. He, he kind of goes from one subject to another, and then he revisits that idea later on, and it's kind of a cyclical pattern with him. He's, he's not very linear. He doesn't posit for you a thesis and then give you a couple of points of evidence to back up his thesis and then give you a very nice, tidy, neat, uh, nice, tidy, neat conclusion. He, he kind of just spins in circles. There's all these circles of thought that kind of uh, uh, spin around, and then he revisits the same point that he's said previously. And when you're reading through verses 7 to 11, again, not exactly the most linear way of thinking. But there's something very interesting in this passage that he does. He says that the commandment that they have received, the, his first century listeners, and by extension, us today here in Hagerstown, in one sense, the commandment from the apostle is an old commandment. And in the following verses, specifically verses 10 and 11, he explains what this commandment is. He says, whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. So you 
link that back to what he said previously in uh, chapter 1. We are to walk in the light as he is in the light. He's using the same light imagery here in chapter 2, talking about love. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. So the commandment, this old commandment, simply is to love your fellow brothers and sisters, and it is old. So you might be wondering, how is this an old commandment? You might be thinking, well, it's a familiar commandment. We know Jesus has talked about love, but how is this an old commandment? Well, turn to Leviticus chapter 19, and in verse 18, you'll see an old commandment given there. Leviticus 19, verse 18 says, You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Now, if you're somebody that likes to underline passages in your Bible, this is an important uh, uh, part of the verse to underline. I am the Lord. The Lord is not inviting discussion. He is reminding his people who he is. And he is reminding them that they are under his authority. He's the rule maker. They are on the chessboard that belongs to him. He gets to move the pieces as he wants. And he says, I am the Lord. So the Old Testament law that was given, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. This is the old commandment. But in another richer, deeper, and fuller sense, John says that this commandment to love is new. Before the Lord Jesus was betrayed and arrested, do you remember what he told his disciples? He said a lot of things, but there's something he kept repeating. In John chapter 13, verses 34 to 35, the Lord said, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. Verse 35, By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. No uncertain terms here. What is the Lord's will for his people? It is to love one another. How is it that the world will know that we are truly disciples of Christ? Our theological positions play a part of that. Our uh, proclamation of the gospel has a really big part of that. Our gathering for worship has a big part in that. Jesus highlights this umbrella command to love one another. This is how the world will know that you truly belong to me. Now what's interesting is, as a pastor, I have brothers and sisters oftentimes tell me where they are struggling and where they need assistance, where they need help to grow. I need to grow to be more patient with my children. I keep snapping at them. I need to grow to you know, be less selfish with my time. I need to grow in, fill in the blank. But one, one thing that I, I rarely hear, and this is, not a, uh, this is not a criticism or a rebuke, this is just an observation that I'm sharing. I rarely hear brothers and sisters say, I need to grow in loving one another. I need to grow in my love for my brothers and sisters. Right? Well, one thing I'll hear oftentimes is, you know, I'm, I'm really struggling with, you know, this particular sin. But not so much the issue of love. 
I've wondered if maybe we just kind of assume we know what love is, and, and we just assume that this isn't really something that we need to think about, like the Lord will just kind of do it for us. But Jesus says very clearly, you are to love one another just as I have loved you. So what is the newness in this command that the Apostle John is highlighting? The newness of the command to love each other is found in the words, as I have loved you. The Apostle John echoes the very same thing that the Lord Jesus said in John chapter 13, that the mark of a true Christian is their love for one another. One author said, It is virtually impossible to exaggerate the importance of love. Nothing is more basic to true spirituality than this singular virtue, and nothing is more central to Christian living. At the very heart of authentic discipleship is love, and without love, we are nothing. When Jesus was asked, which is the greatest commandment in the law, he answered, Matthew chapter 22, verse 37, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And then Christ added a second commandment that follows directly from the first. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. In this, Jesus asserted that our love for one another is the identifying badge of discipleship. The Apostle Paul further maintained that such love is the fulfillment of the law. Galatians chapter 5 verse 14. That is to say... Love meets every requirement of the divine standard. It is a debt that can never be repaid, so love must be continually given. In Christian living, love is not a secondary matter. It is a primary matter. And what's been really interesting, if, if you have paid any attention to uh, you know, Christian circles, is there's always this rise of a new debate. A new subject arises, and suddenly the crisis of faithfulness has reemerged. If we don't get this one subject right, then Christianity is doomed, and our nation is doomed, and the church is doomed, and this is the, you know, the, the cracks in the fault lines, or whatever imagery you, you, you want to use. And what you see is... X issue is raised, and then quickly tribes are formed. And it's as if, if we do not associate ourselves with the correct tribe or the correct camp or the correct faction, then we are suddenly no longer faithful to Christianity. And what I have observed is we are oftentimes very quick to tear down another Christian whether they are like-minded or not, or whether we have uh, disagreements on, on secondary or even tertiary issues, if an issue pops up that suddenly becomes this fire-type situation, tribalism and factionalism quickly results, and people are quick to tear each other down. But the Lord Jesus said, by this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Now, theological issues and debates are going to come up, and they're very important. We, we must have them, because it clarifies what is truly Christian and, and what is not. We, we must have a clear understanding of what the Scriptures teach. We want to hold to true doctrine, and we want to exhibit obedience to sound doctrine. So I'm not discounting the fact that we need to have discussions and even debates, and even draw very strict, clear lines on what is and isn't Christian. But do we do so with love for one another? Do we do so 
with the fact, uh, knowing the fact that this is a person who was made in the image of God. And yes, I disagree with this person, but am I exhibiting love for them? Paul Tripp, uh, a helpful biblical counselor, he provided a very helpful definition of love. Because I think one of the riskiest things we can do is just simply assume we know what it is. Right? Because we live in a world that inundates us with any sort of definition of love that the world momentarily feels. So how would the scriptures teach us what love is? I think Tripp's definition is really helpful. It should be on the screen here for you. Love is the willing self-sacrifice for the good of another that does not require reciprocation or that the person being loved is deserving. I'll read that one more time. Love is the willing self-sacrifice for the good of another that does not require reciprocation or that the person being loved is deserving. In other words, love is uncomfortable. It is inconvenient. And I think in the words of my non-Christian friend's tattoo, love is heavy. If you've read through the New Testament, you'll know that the scriptures are replete with commands to love one another. John 15, verse 12, Jesus says, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Sounds familiar to what he said in John chapter 13. John 15, verse 17, Jesus again says, These things I command you so that you will love one another. Paul in Romans chapter 12, verse 10, Love one another with brotherly affection. Romans 13, verse 8, Paul says, Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Paul goes on in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 12. If you've not caught on to the theme here, I'm going to be reading for you a lot of scripture right now. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 12, Paul says, And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. He goes on in chapter 4, verses 9 and 10. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another, for that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. What a compliment. Uh, he's saying, look, y'all got this. You're doing it. Keep on doing it. He goes on to say, but we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22 Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 8. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. John goes on in 1 John chapter 3. I'm not going to preach the next few sermons right now, but in 1 John chapter 3, verse 11 the Apostle John says, For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Chapter 3, verse 23. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. 1 John chapter 4, verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. 1 John chapter 4, verses 11 to 12. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. 
If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. 2 John chapter 1, verse 5. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. Friends, what is the Christian to do? We are to love one another. Love is never incidental. It is fundamental. Love is the thing that we must hang our coats on. This is it. This is the command. This is the commandment we've received from old. This is what we have heard. This is what we have received. That just as God has loved us, we are to love one another. What does Christian love look like then? Is it simply an expression of sentimentality? We are living in a cultural moment presently, right now, where an argument can be made that the tenor of our political and social discourse has grown more coarse than ever before, where people quickly tear each other down, where Christians even are quick to cut someone out of their lives when they find themselves in a disagreement. Are you tempted to maybe not say hi to that person who you had that one disagreement with some time ago and you know, you've just not really brought that up anymore? Are you quick to walk in a different direction if that person shows up? Are you quick to uh, just not have a conversation with that Christian that you have had this disagreement with? We're living in a cultural moment where our opponents are painted in the worst possible light. We automatically assume the worst about the one who we perceive to be our opponent. We're living in a moment where viciousness is considered strength and humility is considered weak, where relationships serve a transactional purpose, where we ask ourselves, what's in it for me? Friends, have you considered the fact that disagreements over secondary matters can destroy Christian friendships and even split churches? And praise God, our church has not been split. By the mercy of God, we are here together. Different people, different origins, having different disagreements over other things, and here we are together. Not by our own doing, but by the sheer grace of God. If you need a reason to give God praise today, give him praise that our church is here together, united. Praise God. But friends, the Lord Jesus says in no uncertain terms, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another, just as I have loved you. He's not saying, go ahead and be kind for the moment. He's not saying, go ahead and consider what you can get out of this relational transaction and then give what you think is appropriate. He is not saying, go ahead and consider if they have repaid a debt to you before you give to them a loving relationship. He is saying, Love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. So how then are Christians to love one another as the Lord Jesus has loved us? Right? The newness of the command is just as I have loved you. So how do Christians do this? How do we see the love of God for his enemies displayed? 1 John chapter 3, verse 16. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, 
and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Ladies, y'all are not left out of this either. So brothers and sisters, men and the women. He laid down his life for us. We ought to lay down our lives as well. John goes on in uh, 1 John chapter 4, verses 9 through 11. He says, in this, the love of God was made manifest among us. That God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Verse 11, beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Friends, the driving source of Christian love, the fuel in the tank of Christian love is the Christian God who is love. The God who sent his only son to live the life that you and I could not live. To die the death that you and I deserve for our sin as our loving substitute. Who rose from the grave three days later, defeating death and giving the command that his disciples love one another just as he loved them by laying his life down for them. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son. We are to love one another just as he has loved us. We saw last week in Romans chapter 6 that the key to our growing in holiness is not simply just trying a little bit harder and gritting our teeth a little bit harder and just giving it our best. But the key to our sanctification is to look to Jesus. John is saying the exact same thing in the same way. If we are to love one another, we must look to Jesus. We cannot look at a fellow Christian with hatred and then claim we love God. If we are going to love our fellow brothers and sisters, we must look to see what the God who is love has done for us. The gospel is not simply just a ticket that we punch at the beginning of our Christian life. It is the fuel that drives us forward towards the heavenly city as we strive in sanctification to love one another. If you need help to consider, how can I be more patient with my children who frankly are annoying me today? Consider how patient Jesus has been with you when you have stumbled in your sin. If you need help to consider how you can serve your wife today, consider how Jesus, the God of the universe, has served you. If you need help to consider how you can extend kindness to someone who just rubbed you the wrong way, consider how you as a sinner stood before the face of God and said, no, I don't want what you have to give to me, and yet he gave his son to live and die for you. Do you need more reasons to consider God's love? I sure do. Friends, this reality that Jesus gave his life so that I could love my fellow brothers and sisters kept me going this week. Life is hard, and love is hard. And as a pastor, I will be the first one to admit to you, loving Christians is not easy. There are so many times where someone will do something or say something, and my natural inclination is to say, why in the world did you say or do that? And my natural inclination is to get my feathers ruffled up and to defend myself. 
and to rise up to justify my own reasoning for why I am right. And friends, that's not love. There is a way to express what is true and what is right, but not at the expense of tearing someone down because you're just annoyed with them. Do you have reason to look at a fellow Christian and kind of be miffed? Friends, consider what Jesus has done for you. That minor offense that that fellow Christian has committed against you pales in comparison to the cosmic, cosmic offense that we have committed against the Lord. And what has the Lord done? He's given us his son. Friends, I am not willing to sacrifice my children for you. And I hope y'all are okay with that. But God the Father gave his own son to love me. A wretched man who loved his sin, who loved hating God. The Lord looked at me and said, I have given my son for you. And now what is his command? That I love one another. And I'm going to do that, but I ain't giving up my kids for you. So you're going to have to take that. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. The most popular passage on love, you probably have already guessed it if you've spent any amount of time in Christian circles, Christian bookstores, Christian churches, 1 Corinthians 13. And and this passage is super popular at Christian weddings and non-Christian weddings, but this passage, passage was not written so that the Apostle Paul could get royalties at the weddings. He, he wrote this passage for every day. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 4. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Verse 8, love never ends. Friends, did you see in this this brief passage how it's not just sentimental? Uh, One of my favorite theologians wrote, uh, particularly on this passage, how the verses on love, according to Paul, is not so much defined as it is described. And even in this description, it is not theoretical as much as it is practical. There's nothing very sexy about thinking that love is patient and kind. It doesn't really give you all the feels, right? Love is patient and kind. That is hard work, especially when that person whom you've committed your life to is really annoying you. But I'm going to be patient and kind. It is hard work to see someone who has the thing that you have longed for for so long and to not envy because love does not envy. It is hard work to not boast about the thing that the Lord has given to you that maybe someone else hasn't. Friends, it is hard work to not be arrogant or rude. And what what I've seen too, and, and I've heard other brothers and sisters say this, it seems to be popular nowadays, even in Christian circles, particularly on you know, uh, certain spaces in, on the internet, where we're just glad to dunk on each other, right? Like, I've got the right interpretation of this particular text and you don't, so watch me score some points on you. And then in the comment section, like, you know, folks are just kind of clapping and applauding, and, and what this person says is rude. 
but love is not rude. And Jesus' will for us is to love one another so that the whole world will know that we are his disciples by the love that we have for one another. And yet we want to dunk on each other so that we can demonstrate how theologically equipped we are and how we've got the right answer. But love bears all things. It believes all things. It, it hopes all things. Love never ends. Parents, this is something that I have had to, I, I struggle to grow in. Love is not irritable. If you are tempted to snap at your child because they are inconveniencing you in the moment, your snapping at them is a sign of irritability. You are irritable. They have irritated you, right? It's like that when the mosquito bites you on the hand and you smack it, the mosquito bite is irritating to you. But love is not irritable. Meaning, it is not given over to a disposition of irritability. So when your child inconveniences you, if your go-to reaction is to snap at them, be like, why can't you just get it? Why can't you just figure it out? That is not the Father's disposition towards you. That is not how Jesus Christ has loved you. And I am not rebuking you, dear irritable parent, but I am calling you, lay aside the weight of irritability because love is not irritable. What does love look like in practice? What does love look like in practice? I hope you all had a wonderful Valentine's Day. My wife left me for volleyball with a few folks. She didn't leave me. She, she went to go play volleyball with, uh, with, with, uh, uh, with, with some folks, and I got to take my girls out to dinner. But what does love look like in practice? We've already said love is inconvenient, right? When your child wakes you at 2 in the morning because they had an accident or they had a bad dream and you just don't feel like getting up, love is inconvenient, Paul Tripp, he helped describe what love does and what love is. I thought about trimming his list, but what he does in this brief, not brief list, medium-sized list, he takes 1 Corinthians 13 and he expands it to real-life situations. So I'm going to give you all 24 things that Tripp says love is and love does. And Pastor Brett was very kind to include this very last minute. So all 24 things will be on the screen for you. You probably should express your gratitude to this dear brother. Number one, we already saw this definition earlier. Love is willing self-sacrifice for the good of another that does not require reciprocation or that the person being loved is deserving. What does that mean? It means I am willing to lay my life down for you and I do not expect that you're going to give me anything in return, right? If that is our understanding of love, then that is transactional. Love is willing self-sacrifice for the good of another that does not require that you do something for me in return. Number two, love is being willing to have your life complicated by the needs and struggles of others without impatience or anger. And again, this is not easy. But are we willing to entertain the difficulties of life by another brother and sister. Number three, love is actively fighting the temptation to be critical and judgmental toward another while looking for ways to encourage and praise. Friends, it is easy 
to become an expert at finding faults. But the Lord's will for you is to give grace to others. So you ought to become an expert at giving grace rather than finding faults. It is easy to be critical and it is easy to be judgmental. Number four, love is making a daily commitment to resist the needless moments of conflict that come from pointing out and responding to minor offenses. All right, so all the married couples, write this down, memorize this. Just because he doesn't load the dishwasher the way you think it's supposed to be loaded does not mean that we need to have World War III in the kitchen. Resist those minor offenses. Love covers a multitude of sins, even the way we do the dishes. Number five. Yes, thank you, Jesus. Love is being gently honest and humbly approachable in times of misunderstanding. It is easy for us to quickly come to our own self-defense, to say, oh, no, 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 you misunderstood what I said. That's not what I was saying. This is what I was saying. Okay. But if we're going to love one another, if we're going to be patient and kind and forgiving, then we must be gently honest and humbly approachable. Number six, love is being more committed to unity and understanding than you are to winning, accusing, or being right. Friends, are you willing to be misunderstood or to lose the argument, but yet love your fellow brother and sister and win them with love? You don't need to be right all the time. And this is coming from a guy that really used to enjoy internet fights. I used to be all up in those comment sections. Not anymore. Praise the Lord. Are you willing to lose the fight to win the brother? Number seven, love is making a daily commitment to admit your sin, weakness, and failure and to resist the temptation to offer an excuse or shift the blame, right? This is very common in conflict, right? Like when, when our spouse or a dear brother or sister approaches us and says, whoa, 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 you were way out of line doing this thing, we're very quick to try to, you know, not examine ourselves but to, you know, resist that, that, that criticism and, and, and point it back at them, Love is a commitment to admit our sin, weakness, and failure. It, rejoices, it does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. And so I can truly and honestly admit that I was wrong and I was in sin and request forgiveness. Uh, number eight, love is being willing when confronted by another to examine your heart rather than rising to your defense or shifting the focus. Number nine, Love is making a daily commitment to grow in love so that the love you offer to another is increasingly selfless, mature, and patient. Number 10, love is being unwilling to do what is wrong when you have been wronged, but looking for concrete and specific ways to overcome evil with good. Number 11, love is being a good student of another looking for their physical, emotional, and spiritual needs so that in some way you can remove the burden and support them as they carry it or encourage them along the way. I think Paul says that a couple times, particularly in the book of Galatians. Number 12, 
Love is being willing to invest the time necessary to discuss, examine, and understand the relational problems you face, staying on task until the problem is removed or you've agreed upon a strategy of response. So, again, married couples, this is just kind of an easy example to to point out. You know, when the husband says one thing and the wife is saying something else and you think you're really right and you're just going to continue to argue until she just finally comes around your way, A better loving way to engage in this is to mutually agree, I might be wrong, and I don't want to be right and then lose you. There is no argument that is worth winning than to lose the love and respect of your spouse. It's just not. Number 13, love is being willing to always ask for forgiveness and always being committed to grant forgiveness when it is requested. All right. This probably ruffles some feathers, right? But Ephesians chapter 4, verse 33, be kind, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. Become an expert at granting forgiveness. Become an expert at requesting forgiveness. You were rude to your wife? Admit it. Admit and say, honey, I was rude to you. And love is not rude. I sinned against the Lord and I sinned against you. Will you please forgive me for being rude? or snapping, or being irritable, or being impatient and unkind. But the key is, you need to request forgiveness. When you have done wrong against another that requires forgiveness, a debt has been incurred, it is not sufficient for you to say, yeah, sorry about that. No. Do you flippantly refer to your sin when you look to the Lord and say, oh, God, sorry? No. We must request forgiveness. Ask for forgiveness, and if you are the one who is being asked for forgiveness, become an expert at granting it. Number 14, love is recognizing the high value of trust in a relationship and being faithful to your promises and true to your word. There is nothing loving about someone who says that they will be honest and true to the commitment that they've made to you, and then they're not. You just can't claim that you're loving the person if you're being unfaithful to the promises you made. Number 15, love is speaking kindly and gently, even in moments of disagreement, refusing to attack the other person's character or assault their intelligence. It's kind of fun, though, right? All right, so if if you have fun doing that, that's remnants of sin, and Jesus is going to get rid of that for you one day. You're not there yet, but he's going to do it. Number 16, Love is being unwilling to flatter, lie, manipulate, or deceive in any way in order to co-opt the other person into giving you what you want or doing something your way. You're not loving if you're lying and manipulating. What you are is lying and manipulating. Number 17, love is being unwilling to ask another person to be the source of your identity, meaning, and purpose, or inner sense of well-being while refusing to be the source of theirs. And that's an interesting one because what we're doing when, when we are implicitly, and maybe we don't even know we're doing this, when we look to another person to be the source of our identity and meaning, we are putting upon them a burden and a weight that they were not meant to carry. And love does not place undue burdens that are impossible to carry. Number 18, love is the willingness to have less free time, less sleep, and a busier schedule in order to be faithful to what God has called you to be and to do as a spouse, a parent, and a neighbor. And all the parents in the room just sighed loudly. 
less sleep, a busier schedule, less free time. Number 19, love is a commitment to say no to selfish instincts and to do everything that is within your ability to promote real unity, functional understanding, and active love in your relationships. In other words, I am looking to do what is good for you. Number 20, love is staying faithful to your commitment to treat another with appreciation, respect, and grace, even in moments when the other person doesn't seem deserving or is unwilling to reciprocate. That's hard, but that's what love does. Number 21, love is the willingness to make regular and costly sacrifices for the sake of a relationship without asking anything Uh, without asking for anything in return or using your sacrifices to place the other person in your debt. So friends, when you give a gift with strings attached, that's no gift. And if you're going to try to give me a gift with strings attached, please keep it. But if you're going to give a gift and say, I just want to bless you, I just want to love you, I just want to be generous to you, that's love. I don't have anything. I'm not expecting anything in return. There's nothing I want you to do for me. I just want to love on you. That's love. And I am grateful to say that's the kind of love I have experienced as a member of this church. And if you're not a member of this church, you should become a member of this church so that you can truly experience the love that Jesus is talking about and that we are trying to do and experience together with one another. Number 22. Love is being unwilling to make any personal decision or choice that would harm a relationship, hurt the person, or weaken the bond of trust between you. One practical way that this would look, uh, husbands and wives, y'all got a major expense coming up. Don't drag your spouse along if they're not comfortable with you making this expense. Don't make this personal decision and just yank them with you. Be patient. Be kind. Explain. Have genuine, honest conversations, but don't drag someone along because you know you're right when they're not there yet. Be patient. Number 23, we're almost there. We're going to land the plane soon, I promise. Love is refusing to be self-focused or demanding, but instead looking for specific ways to serve, support, and encourage, even when you are busy or tired. Number 24, Love is daily admitting to yourself, the other person, and God that you are unable to be driven by a cruciform love without God's protecting, providing, forgiving, rescuing, and delivering grace. What does that mean? It means we look to the way in which Jesus has loved us and we say, I cannot love you or others in the way that Jesus has loved me if I don't look to him. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. So friends, we possess an old commandment. But the Apostle John goes on. We possess also assurance to know. So again, this is this kind of cyclical pattern of John's writing. He says earlier in chapter 2, verse 1, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And then in verses 12 to 14, the apostle provides comforting assurance to these Christians who were undoubtedly struggling to hold fast to good news. They were struggling to love one another. 
you might read these verses and just wonder, well, why is John specifically just saying fathers and children, fathers and young men? There's all kinds of discussion on what John might mean in this, but most scholars don't believe he was only speaking to older men and younger men. More than likely, John is using the terms father, children, young men to refer to various levels of maturity. Right? There are those in the church who are much more mature than others, and there are those in the church who are younger in their spiritual maturity, but the point that John is driving home in these closing verses, in verses 12 to 14, is assurance. He wants these Christians to know. He doesn't want them to wonder and doubt and be curious, like, are my sins truly forgiven? Like, has God really forgiven me? He says, in no uncertain terms, your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. You know him who is from the beginning. You have overcome the evil one. You know the Father. You know him who is from the beginning. You are strong and the word of God abides in you. And you have overcome the evil one. He's giving good news to Christians who need good news. He is giving good news of reassurance to Christians who just wonder, did they lose it all? Are they on the precipice of falling off the cliff and God's just going to kick them out? Friends, who is John speaking to? He's speaking to Christians. He is speaking to those who have trusted in Jesus Christ. And if you notice in this passage, he is not saying, you know because you have done these things. You have loved your brothers really well. You have done all this, all, you know, all of these spiritual accolades and all these spiritual accomplishments. Look again what he said. It is not our strength, ability, wisdom, and intellect that the Apostle John is appealing to. He says, you can have assurance to know that your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. You know him who is from the beginning. Do do you notice this Godward shift? It's as if the Apostle John is turning the face of these downcast children saying, let me point to you a better way to look. Look up. And he's gently turning the face of these little children to look to the one who has given his life for them, through whom they have overcome the evil one, through whom they now know the Father, through Jesus Christ, who is from the beginning. Through Jesus, they are now strong, and the word of God abides in them. It is through him that they have overcome the evil one. John is not just laying upon the Christians another thing to do. He is saying, you are commanded to love one another and look to the one who has loved you. Look to Jesus. Look to the one who laid his life down so that you would no longer be called servants but friends. Look to Jesus. Consider what he has done and all that he has done and all that he has accomplished, all that he has secured for you. And you can know for certain, not because of your own ability to love others, not because of your own wisdom to put into practice all the things that you must put into practice, not because of your own spiritual performance, but him. The one who is outside of you, who has loved you. Friends, God has promised salvation to all who believe in him. God has promised to preserve us until the end. God has promised to lead us to love one another just as he has loved us. 
And you can trust that he will not begin to break his promises to you now. Let's pray. Father, you have loved us with a love that we can never repay. And we exult in that. We rejoice in the good news of the love of God that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still enemies, Christ loved us. We rejoice in the good news that your love was given to us in Christ and does not leave us to be bitter, hateful, resentful people, but frees us to love one another just as Christ has loved us. And Father, we may be known for many things in the world. We may be known for many things here in Hagerstown and Washington County as a local church. Father, we ask and pray that the thing that we would be known for is our love for one another. Father, we ask that you would help us to look to Jesus as we love our brothers and sisters. That we would look to Jesus as we love our spouses and our neighbors and our children. Father, we ask that you would help us to look to Jesus as we love you with all of our mind and all of our heart and all of our soul and all of our strength, not for our glory, but for yours. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.